wonderful. So today we are back in our series, season, both meaning the same thing, in Ephesians. Um, We're journeying through the book of Ephesians. We've just started, so we're still in chapter one. Uh, We're going to talk about knowing and what it looks like to know something or someone. And you know me, I like to have a bit of fun with these things. And so the first piece of fun that we're going to have, and I'm very much, very much about to show my age. I was wondering what you were saying no to. Brian knows what's coming. The title of our sermon today is Knowing Him, Knowing Us. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. It's the only reason I made it that title was so that I could sing. Uh, It's not really. We are going to look at what it looks like to know someone. And the fun we're about to have is this. Dun, dun, dun. Brad Pitt. Who knows Brad Pitt? Put your hand in the air. Well, shh, don't give the game away. Don't give the game away. Hands up, have you ever heard of Brad Pitt? Excellent. What do we know about Brad Pitt? One at a time, go for it. Shout it out, Paul. Don't talk about Fight Club. Okay, I won't. He is, who is he? He's an actor. Where is he from? He's American. What else do we know about him? Oh, yes. He used to be married to Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston. That's right. Not at the same time. Uh, I can tell you that he has six children with Angelina Jolie, uh, that he went to a very uh, interestingly named academy. It was called Kickapoo. Kickapoo Academy. Uh, He is actually called William, not Brad. Bradley is his middle name. Who would have thunk it? Also, his net worth. What do you think? His net worth as a person, as an actor? Five million. It's $240 million that this chap is worth. Can you believe that? Brad Pitt, how do we know all this stuff? How do we know it? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. (laughs) The internet, Facebook, the movies he's been in, the magazines we've read, the trashy newspapers that we've read. That's how we know all of this stuff, isn't it? We know this stuff because we've seen it on TV. But do we actually know Brad Pitt? Has anyone met him? No. Do we know what he's thinking at any given moment? Do we know his character, really? No, we don't. What about this chap? How much do we know, Brian? He's actually shrinking in his seat right now. My lovely husband, Brian, tell me what you know about him. He looks like an Orcadian farmer. He looks like an Orcadian farmer. I'm so sorry. (laughs) What else do we know about Brian? He's funny. Oh no, I can't hear you. Tell me, what else do we know? He was in the Air Force. What else? (laughs) He supports the wrong Glasgow football team, that was. (laughs) Brian loves football. Do you all know him really, really well? You don't, do you? So how do we really know someone? 
We have to spend a lot of time with them, don't we, to get to know someone. I can tell you that I have known this wonderful man for 20 years, been married to him for 16 years, and I'm still learning things about him. But I do know his character. I know roughly what he's thinking in any given moment. I know that I'm going to be in trouble when I get home for using him as an example. I know that he probably is plotting revenge and that there will be something that will appear on the screen to mortify me at some point next time he's leading a service. But I also know that he's fiercely passionate, passionate about his faith, passionate about his family, about his wife, about his children. And you guys can probably see that from some of the stuff that he does, but you don't necessarily know his character because you've not spent the same amount of time with him. Well, the passage today that we're going to is Ephesians 1.15. And Paul, who is writing this letter, is talking about knowing God and how we get to know him. And there's two no's uh, that he talks about in this. We're going to read together and then we're going to explore what it is that Paul is talking about. So Ephesians 1, it should come up on the screen. Hopefully the font is readable. Excellent, it is. So Ephesians 1, 15, it says, For this reason, ever since I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Oh, I'm quite echoey. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you, God, for your word. Father God, I just pray for every single one of us as we really think about what it is to know you, what it is that Paul is calling us to know and be aware of and get to know. I pray that you would land it in our hearts today. Lord, thank you that your word is living and breathing and it seeks to shape us and change us. And so I just pray that as I talk this morning, it would be your words that are delivered into our hearts. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is knowing him. So what is it to know him? You see, we live in a world today where it's all about knowledge, isn't it? It's all about information. We have information thrown at us from every direction, particularly via the internet, if you are the sort of person that scrolls through screeds and screeds on Facebook, Instagram, uh, some other social media things that I'm unaware of. Uh, but information is around us all the time, isn't it? And we can be tricked into thinking that if we have all the information, then we're okay. I'm not sure that that is what Paul is talking about here, though, is it? So does that then naturally follow that if we memorize every line in the Bible, do we know God? Does that mean we know him? 
It means we know more of him, know more about him. And God's word is living and breathing. And so we would hope that if we read the Bible and we memorize scripture, that it arms us and it shapes us and it speaks into our lives. But if we do that in isolation from him and just see it as a book, is it going to shape us? Is it going to change our lives? It's not going to mean that we get to know God, is it? Information without intimacy with God is just information. It doesn't do anything. Spending time with someone makes it an experience. This thing is experiential. We need to experience what it's like to be around God. Yes, we need to know as much as we can about him. We need to read our Bibles because it is what shows us his character. It is the truth of who he is. It's the truth of who we are. But what Paul is saying here in verse 18 is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And before I go on to the next part, let's just dwell on that for a moment because our heart, the word that he uses in the original Greek, um, uh, Old Testament Greek here is, I'm going to pronounce it wrongly, I'm so sorry if there are any Old Testament scholars in the room, sorry. Uh, The word used here is cardias. That word means spiritual insight, the spiritual side of us. So Paul is calling for the spiritual side of us to know God. Not just our heads, but our hearts, for it to jump from our heads to our hearts. He's calling for us not just to have wisdom, but to have revelation as well. And that can only come from God. It can only come from the Holy Spirit. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but when you sit and read your Bible, do you have a little moment of prayer first? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes we can approach the Bible as a tick boxing exercise, can't we? I know especially for me, if I'm going through one of these plans that, you know, read the Bible in a year and it tells you how many verses you have to read to get through that day and it can feel a little bit like a, this is something I'm doing because I know I need to do it and I'm just going to tick this box. But are we really getting to know God when we're approaching it with that mindset? Or if we're approaching it with the mindset of, well, I don't really know God, so I'm going to read it, but it's not really anything going to happen. We can, can't we? Because we can approach it with a very worldly perspective of this is just something that I need to do. But the truth is Paul is asking that our hearts would be enlightened, that we would have wisdom, yes, and that wisdom will come from God as well as from reading the word, but we would also have spiritual insight, that we would be able to connect with him. He is alive. He wants to connect with us. It takes both of us to know him. So in this relationship, in any relationship, any human relationship that we can have, both parts have to be in it, don't they? And in any relationship, either one of you can walk away from that relationship at any given moment. Sometimes we can think God's a bit like that, can't we? Sometimes when we know God, but yet we've been hurt by people, which fairly sure all of us have been, then we can apply that lens when we look at God. And we can think, well, I know what I've done, and so he's going to walk away. Or, well, the Bible says this, but that's not what I'm seeing. 
and so I'm going to walk away. But the truth is, God is already invested. We're going to go on to talk a little bit more about that, but God is already invested by what he's done through sending Jesus to that cross. He's already put all his chips in. God never changes. He is the one that is pursuing us. He is the one that is constant and stays the same. He is the one that will never walk away. The only person that can affect our relationship is us. And that's really difficult to have as a reality, isn't it? Because when we know what we know about God, but yet we also know what we know about ourselves and what we know about those in our lives, especially, no offence guys, but especially those in the church, we're very good at hurting each other, aren't we? It's really difficult. I know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know of many, many people who are hurt by the church because we're all human and we apply that thing to God when actually it's not God that's done anything. He's not changed. His opinion of us hasn't changed. His love for us hasn't changed. Nothing about God has changed or will ever change. We have to stop looking at God with the eyes of the people who've hurt us. We have to separate it out. We have to know him for who he is, not who other people say he is, not who the world says he is, but who we know he is because we've had an experience of him through reading his word and through spending time with other people who will encourage us in our relationship with him. So Paul is saying that we need wisdom and revelation. But if you go on, on to verse 18, further down, it says, so that you may know hope. And that's an interesting word too, isn't it? Hope is something that I think we throw around quite lightly. So for example, I really hope that it's not raining tomorrow because I've got to drive all the way down to Peterborough. Well, when I say I, I don't mean I. Someone is driving me down to Peterborough tomorrow, and I really hope it's not raining. But what I'm implying there is that I think it's probably going to rain. I would like it not to, but I think it's probably going to. Or I really hope I get that gift at Christmas. The implication there is I'm not sure I'm going to get it, but I kind of hope I do. We throw this word around quite lightly, but the original meaning of it is expectancy confidence, security. And in fact, the word that is used here means joyful expectancy of our salvation. That's a big thing. So Paul is saying that we would know the hope to which we're called for. So the hope that we are called for is that we would be joyful and expectant of our salvation. So what that's saying is, if you've accepted Jesus into your life, you are going to heaven. You will spend eternity with him. That will not change. It is a solid, joyful expectancy. But again, quite often, we don't think that way. Quite often we think that's going to change because, well, I know I messed up. Or I know I've gotten myself into a situation, so I'm not actually sure. Will I definitely? Will I definitely go to heaven? Is he not angry with me? Does it not change? We are called to hope. 
We are called to expect great things. And I would go as far as to add in here that we are called to expect that Jesus is all in. Like I said earlier on, he's already paid the price. He's going nowhere. That is an expectancy we should have. Not a, well, I kind of hope he's there. Are you there? Are you there? Maybe, maybe he's not there today for me because I gossiped. You know, or I got it wrong. I really hurt someone. And so actually, I'm not sure what he thinks of me. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we are called to hope, which means we are called to expect and trust and know that we are saved and that God is right there. That's the revelation he's talking about. I'm going to ask, who am I going to pick on? I feel like I should pick on someone. I'm going to ask Donna May because she made eye contact with me. Come forward, Donna May. We used an illustration for this recently in our youth group, and I found it quite helpful. So, Donna May, you are going to build me a tower. And in this tower, your aim is to make it the highest possible. So you're not going to build traditional Jenga, because we all know that that's quite secure. I would like you to make me, however you wish, a tall tower. You can make them end to end like this. I'm going to time you, and I'm going to see how tall your tower gets. Look, I'm going to give you lots of bricks. At the same time as that, I'm going to build my own tower. So you crack on. I'm going to time you. Three, two, one, go. Build me a tower. Any old tower, any tower you like. However you like. has to be super high, the highest you can possibly get. Oh, look, she's being solid. She's taking it quite seriously. Oh, I'm not going to be able to do this, am I? Okay. Now, I am a master at building houses of cards. Not. Now, when we build our hope... Okay, no, no, I'm making a point because when we build our hope on something that is going to fall over, then it's no hope at all, is it? So I have attempted, thank you, Donami, you can give her a round of applause for helping. And I could get someone else to come and make me a house of cards, but this demonstration is to show you, the, the youth doing it were absolutely hilarious, by the way, because they're so competitive. They were in teams against each other, and they had a time to beat. And they were building towers, and so some of them were building them, like, up on end like this, to make the tallest possible tower. And some of them had brilliant towers, but every time they got up beyond about six bricks, they fell over. And so they'd have to quickly start again, because they're building an even bigger tower, and we're going to run out of time, and you got a prize if you had the highest tower. And at the same time, someone's building them out of cards. Guys, sometimes we build our hope and our trust in God like a house of cards. So we see it as something that can just fall down at any moment. We talked about it as our confidence in God, our trust in God. It can feel a little bit like a house of cards because sometimes we've got it.
and it's in our souls and we get God loves me and I am created by him and I am here for a purpose and I am on it today. And then all it takes is for someone to say something or something to happen in our lives and then all of a sudden it's just knocked over by a tiny little gust of wind but to us it feels massive. But that's not what Paul's asking us to do. He's asking us to build our hope on God on a solid foundation of the fact that Jesus will never change. The fact that Jesus is all in. The fact that Jesus is right there and all we need to do is figure out how to get closer to him. And for each one of us, that is going to be different. For some of us, it might be committing to, I am going to deliberately spend a certain amount of time every morning or every evening or every afternoon just waiting on God. For some of us, it's, I'm going to make sure I worship God because I know that's where I connect with him. So I'm going to make sure I worship every single day, whether I feel it or not. For some of us, it's, I need to get to know him more through the Bible. And so we will commit to doing a specific Bible plan. For some of us, we have to do this in community. In fact, for all of us, if you're not part of a small group, then please get in one. Speak to Frank and Ruth. They're down here at the front. They'll make themselves available at the end. But we can't do this in isolation from each other because we need each other to keep building this solid foundation so that it doesn't get blown over like a gust of wind. Paul is asking us to have the eyes of our heart enlightened by this wisdom and revelation. It is a solid, joyful expectancy. And the last thing that I'm going to pick apart here is in verse 19 to 22. In fact, I'm going to read it again. Verse 19, that we are to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his, his feet sorry, and appointed him to be head over the church. So he is the head, we are the body. As church, we are his vehicle. We are his body. A body is made up of many different parts, isn't it? I'm sure possibly someone even knows how many bones there are in the human body. Does anyone? Many, right? There are many. And then if we include muscles, tendons, organs, veins, blah, hair, all sorts of other things, there are many parts to the body of Christ. That means we all have our part to play, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians, it puts it like this, 12, 27. It says that he, we are the body, he is the head, and each of us has a part. That means if one of us doesn't play our part or is missing, then it's not the full body. We all have a part to play in this. But the thing is, he's talking before that about this power. And if you've been with us for a little while, we've done a series on um, all the way through the Gospel of Mark. We've stopped um, till, to the part where um, Jesus is crucified because we're going to pick that up again for the run-up to Easter. But what we've seen all the way through that is God's
power and authority over and over and over again. His power over the elements, his power over disease, his power over demons, his power over raising people from the dead. This power is the power that lives in us. That's what Paul is saying. And what we have to remember about Paul is he's saying this from personal experience. Paul used to be Saul, and you can read this in Acts 9. He used to be called Saul, and he made it his business to persecute people who believed in Jesus. It was his job, literally. He took it very seriously, and him and his mates used to go around torturing and killing anyone who aligned themselves to Jesus. Anyone who thought that Jesus was the Messiah, he went about making their lives an absolute misery or killing them. Until one day Paul's walking along the road and has an actual physical experience of the Lord. He goes blind and Jesus said that this, it's Jesus, that I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. He's blind for three days and only gets his sight back when someone comes who has been sent from Je by Jesus and prays for him. And only then does he realize this is all true. Jesus is the Messiah. And at that point, his entire life is changed. So here we have power displayed that makes him blind and then makes him see again. Power displayed that makes him go from the guy who despises Christians and kills them to the guy who writes these letters to encourage the body of Christ towards him. It's life-transforming power. And that's the power that he's talking about here. He's using evidence that he's seen in his own life to make sure that every one of us can see it and follow along with it. Guys, that power lives in every single one of us if we've accepted Jesus into our lives. And I think it's something that we need regular, uh, regularly reminded of. And particularly in this season where we are strengthening our stakes here in Ellen. We are about to make um, what we are doing here already even stronger. And can I just say, the amount of money that we have raised as a church is utterly incredible. I'm sure you all agree, but I'm not going to lie, I wasn't sure we could do that because I was looking at our finances and thinking, oh Lord, it actually will need to be a miracle. And I know I've had conversations with many of you saying, but I can only give this amount. And that's all he asked us to do, isn't it? All the way through, all, all he was asking of us was to give our little amount and he would do the rest. And he's done it. We are so close to that target. He is honoring the vision that we have obediently and faithfully shared. That means he's going to honor the rest of it. And so all these things that we're now going to be able to do and think about and dream about and plan, I am excited about those things. We've had a couple of prophetic words spoken over us as a site here in Ellen. That really means someone has been tuning into God and asking on our behalf what God um, is saying to us as a church. And there's two things I want to share with you. The first one is that a couple of weeks ago, God really showed me this picture of what I thought was the walls of Jericho. Not that I know what the walls of Jericho look like, by the way, because I haven't been there. But I was imagining that these were the walls of Jericho. And we as a church were marching around these walls. And as we were doing that, we were worshipping the Lord. 
As we were doing that, it became apparent that these were walls around Ellen and the surrounding area. These walls were built up with past hurts, previous generational stuff. It was sin, it was darkness. The walls were quite high. And we as a church didn't care. We as a church went out and we marched and marched and marched and marched and raised our voices really high. And as we did, there were cracks appearing in this wall. The walls were beginning to come down, like they were coming down the way rather than out the way, thankfully. They were coming down the way and as they did, there were cracks forming and there were bricks falling. City Church, this will be difficult. There will be bricks that fall, but I very clearly heard Jesus say, don't be taken out by a brick. Don't be distracted by the crumbling because you want to be there when those walls come down. I am doing it. I am doing a miracle. Get ready because you're going to get marching around these walls. Which fits into a picture we had a number of months ago now um, of us as an army heading out into the streets of Ellen and marching around. Which also ties in with another picture that someone else had of an army um, with shields. Now, there's a technical term for this, and I can't remember what it is, but when they put their shields together, this army all moved together as one, and they've all got their shields. Some of them have got them to the side, some of them have got them up, and it looks like an armadillo. If anyone knows the technical term, you can tell me. I'm calling it armadillo. But as this army marches, what they do is they put their shields out. Now, if one of them marches in a different direction, then there's a gap there, right? So this whole army moves together as one and they are completely protected because they've got their armor and their shield of God. Now, if you put all those pictures together, I believe that what God is saying is City Church Ellen, you're on the right track. City Church Ellen, you are the body. I am the head, you are the body. I know what I'm doing. I have a plan. All you have to do is follow me. Will we follow him? Will we march around these walls and begin to see them crumble down? Will we make sure we're not distracted? Because if we want to do that and we want to see this strengthened and here for not just now but generations to come, which is exactly what Paul's talking about here, if we want to see that, then we need to be completely secure on the hope that which we're called for. We need to be completely secure in knowing him and knowing who he is and remembering that regardless of what happens, he stays the same. I feel like God is saying, rise up. Rise up, City Church Ellen. There is work to do, but just remember, I am the head and you are the body. Shall we stand?